What do you define the role of OT as in acute care? Kind of glorified discharge planners, to be honest, because you know, walking into the room, like, well, first of all, they think that I'm getting them a job, of course. Second of all, once I say what my role is, they're like, okay, so like I can go home. They just want to show me what they can do to get home. Of course, I could say things like meaningful activities and say all of our OT jargon words. But what's most relevant to the patient is that they don't want to be there because it's exactly it's not a walk in the park. They want to go home or they want to go to their prior living facility or wherever it is. They might be at independent living or like assisted living. Hi, I'm Clarice Grody and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system through a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. Welcome everyone back to Amplify OT Podcast. I am so excited today to be joined by Alyssa, the genuine OT from Instagram. She's a fantastic acute care therapist and we're talking all about acute care and the role of occupational therapy and also then some of her experiences working with case management because I think any OT who works in acute or OTA knows that case management plays a really big role, but sometimes understanding what they do and why they do what they do. And there can also be a lot of friction sometimes between our case management and social work teams and the therapy team. So she took on some initiatives to learn more about their case management teams at her hospital. And we're going to talk about that today. So Alyssa, welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. Awesome. Thanks for letting me join you today. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought we'd start off with some quick questions, which is how long have you been in OT? Technically. I graduated June 2021, took my boards and passed them around that month. So I'd say off and on since 2021, I had my first (laughs) job back then for OT, took some time off, tried to figure out what I wanted to do, eventually found my way back to uh, acute care. So now I've been at the hospital for 14 months. Oh, great. Yeah. So if anyone doesn't know, I've also worked in acute care. I worked in acute care for two and a half years and loved it. Acute is my favorite setting. I am an eval and discharge kind of therapist. And so acute care is my place. I I tell people that I'm not necessarily the kind of therapist that likes to really get to know my patients. I just kind of want to see them twice. And if you're that kind of therapist, that's okay. There's others of you out there. And if that's what you like to do, acute care is the place to be. Yeah, I definitely, I really identify with that because in my mind, sometimes I think treatments are a little boring. I really like to be the problem solver and one of the first people that gets to see the patient and do their evaluation and say, hey, this is safe or this is not safe, or these are just the supports they need and then they can go home. I just, I love that role. I like the eval and discharge too. I agree. I have never been as into the intervention and the daily treatments. I am much more all about evals and discharges, which when I was in home health, that was also kind of what I did. A lot of times the OTAs are the ones who did the daily interventions. Mm -hmm. So for home health, I also generally only saw my patients two to three times and that worked for me. So, (laughs) well, perfect. I always say that every setting has like its own personality. Mm -hmm. And so depending on your personality depends on whether or not a setting is going to be a good fit. Yeah, if you don't like the day just falling apart and new things coming together in a second, this is not a good setting. But if, <laughs> if you don't like chaos, yeah. acute care is not the place to be. 
I'm very flexible. I like not knowing what's going to happen. I like clocking in, doing whatever it takes to get through the day, clocking out, and that's done. The, Absolutely. The day is clean and like it's a new slate the next day. So I like that. Yeah, you never know if someone's going to be there the next day. And so you don't really take all of that mm-hmm. home. Like we were talking before we jumped on that even though there's still stuff that follows you because we're humans, we interact with people and there's stuff that, you know, lays heavy on your heart sometimes. And there are patients who are there sometimes for a prolonged period of time. But a lot of times the nice thing that I liked about acute is that you do kind of just clock out and you really don't think about it until Mm -hmm. the next day because you don't know if the patient that you saw that afternoon is still going to be there in the morning. So there's not really, it's not really useful for you to spend a lot of time thinking about it because you just don't know. Yeah, that's really helped with my sanity and work-life balance. So I appreciate that part of the job. Absolutely. So how big is your hospital? How many beds? It's about 330. It's, I guess it'd be considered a medium-sized hospital. And it has ICUs and all those. Yeah, there's two different ICUs, more of the open heart surgery patients and then another catch-all kind of ICU. Which units do you tend to work on? I used to train in the ICU and be there, but now I just work on every floor but those. I like, <laughs> I just, I don't really like 50 things coming out of the person. I would rather get them up and moving and more mobile, which you can do that to an extent in ICU, but I can manage an IV pool with my eyes closed. I can manage a Foley really easily. Just <laughs> when they have too many things coming out of them, it's just a lot more. Yeah. It's a lot more you have to do. I was mostly on our telly floor. I did some day of joints and then on our CV ICU, so our cardiovascular ICU. So a lot of cabbages, which mm-hmm. some people hated the cabbages and I can't blame you. Cabbages are kind of, can be a rough population, but I didn't seem to mind them. So they put me on that floor because I was the only one who didn't, one of the ones who didn't complain about being up there. So like we get assigned to a different unit about every two weeks. So it's kind of nice. You can get to know the floor as best as you can and then you get tired of it and then you switch. So that's great. So uh, when I'm on the ortho unit, then I'm also supposed to do the same day joints or otherwise I'll be on the step down unit from ICU and OT has been designated as the therapist to do pre-op evals before a cabbage. So I've been doing a lot of those. Are they already in the hospital when you do those pre-op? Yeah, a lot of people come in with whatever their condition is and then they decide, okay, they're going to get open heart surgery tomorrow or in two days. They'll put OT on and say pre-op open heart eval. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Ours didn't do anything. Like I think they were all, I mean, unless it was like an emergency cabbage, they were all pre-planned and I don't think we would see them ahead of time. We did like, sometimes PT would do a pre-op eval for joints, but we didn't have any really pre-op evals for OT in our hospital. Yeah. I, I love being the one to do that. I think it's wonderful. Well, especially cabbages, it makes sense because it's so, you don't realize how much you rely on your arms <laughs> to push up to get dressed or how much, how often you reach overhead. And that's always the hardest part is explaining sternal precautions (laughs) afterwards. How many times you have to yell, don't push up, (laughs) heart hugger. Don't. (laughs) And I think it's helpful too, because if I'm seeing them at their baseline Mm -hmm. and I see that they're already really relying on their arms to stand and get out of bed, I already kind of flag that. And I put my note like, hey, they're going to have a really hard time with bed mobility and standing and getting a shower, whatever they need to do. If it's difficult now, it's going to be difficult after. So already kind of get in uh, maybe a skilled nursing facility or a rehab facility on board. Yeah. Triggering that to the case managers. I think that's what makes acute care so 
interesting. One that acute is when you're looking at the continuum of care, acute care is at the top, right? You can't get more acute than acute. (laughs) So you're seeing kind of everybody. Like I always say that you really, when you're working in a setting, you almost, you pretty much need to understand how every setting works that's beneath you, like anything that you're going to be referring to. So when you're in acute care as an OT or as a practitioner, you know, you really need to understand not only how your setting works, but ERF, LTAC, SNF, home health, outpatient, hospice, palliative, because you are referring to all of those settings. And so that makes it makes it different. But then also because of the reimbursement structure, because it's often so bundled payments, mm-hmm. then it really allows for a lot more flexibility in how hospitals utilize their systems or their reimbursement. So then they're able to do some of those pre-evaluations or some of those kind of other unique combinations of care that you don't see in other settings. And I think that's a really great opportunity to highlight the unique value of occupational therapy in acute and in those kind of settings is because we can do kind of different stuff, especially if you're like in an accountable care organization and some of those other different payment systems. Right. For our hospital, I guess that they ran into some barriers with discharge planning. If they were specifically clicking, like, I think that they should go to SNF. I think that they should go to LTAC. I think that Mm -hmm. they should go to So we were actually told like we can click these like trigger phrases. If I click ongoing skilled therapy needs to the discharge planners, that might mean like skilled nursing or LTAC or whatever it is so they can have more flexibility and they don't keep running into barriers because it didn't match exactly what therapy said. Um, Otherwise, I can say, you know, home with assist in home health or home with assist outpatient OT. But if I click ongoing skilled therapy needs, that doesn't mean go home and that's done. <laughs> then they kind of yes. go, oh, okay, so I, sh- I should start referring them out somewhere. Yeah, because I think I want to come back to that because that's definitely something I've seen like on T, and I've seen other hospitals kind of play around with phrasing. And I think this is where it gets really interesting. And in what is the point of documentation? Is it for reimbursement? Is it for because we're actually trying to document what's happening with the medically? Is it to communicate with the patient? you know, what is the role of documentation? I think what you just said there speaks to that. And so I, once we kind of talk a little bit more about case management, I definitely want to come back to that because I also have a lot of thoughts on how we phrase our discharge recommendations. So that then, since we've already talked about so much about discharge, what do you define the role of OT as in acute care? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of glorified discharge planners, to be honest, because you know, walking into the room, like, well, first of all, if I say OT, they might already, like I say it out, you know, spell it out, occupational therapy. First of all, they think that I'm getting them a job, of course. Second of all, once I say what my role is, they're like, oh, okay, so like I can go home. They just want to mm-hmm. show me what they can do to get home. Of course, I could say things like meaningful activities and say all of our OT jargon words, but what's most relevant to the patient is that they don't want to be there because it's exactly it's not a walk in the park. They want to go home or they want to go to their prior living facility or wherever it is. They might be at independent living or like assisted living. And Yeah, we're seeing people at their worst often, which I think also makes acute care especially challenging because you never really get the satisfaction or you rarely get the satisfaction of seeing them get better. Like you might in inpatient rehab or sniff or outpatient um, where you really get to follow a patient for a longer time. You kind of just see them and hope that things work out for them. But I agree that when I used to see patients, you know, I'd go in and say, hey, I'm an occupational therapist. And I would just tell them, I'm here to help you do the things that you need to do every day. Mm-hmm. And that's all I would say, because at the end of the day, that's all they cared about. Yeah, <laughs> They want to know 
why they should care that you're one of a thousand people that have walked in their room and why they should bother to get out of bed for you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I've been playing around with my phrasing. I say things like here to help you get back to your life, right? Like everything you need to do as a person, like you said, to help you do the things that you need to do every day. And so just let's get you, let's just get you out of bed just because I'm told to. That's to be relevant to the person. Yeah. And I think that's really key when we are coming up with our elevator pitches or kind of defining what occupational therapy is. The definition of what it is depends on who you're talking to. But I think especially, you know, in acute care, I see so many practitioners really struggle with how to define what OT is. And so when someone says, what's occupational therapy, we almost feel like we have to, oh, well, we work from, you know, birth through death and dying and we're in mental health and schools. And then that patient has already, you've already lost them. They're already Mm -hmm. done. They don't care. They don't care that we work in schools when they're here in the hospital or, you know, it's like setting goals. Like if I told a patient, oh, we're going to get you back to playing with your grandkids and they don't have grandkids, that's not (laughs) going to be what motivates them. And so they just want to know why you walked into their room Yep, and why they can't keep watching Jeopardy. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, I've, I've kind of moved to the point where I'm, I'm done pulling teeth. Like if you want to participate in therapy, that's great. If not, I have so many other people that want to get up and move and like want to recover. So I'm not going to be forcing anybody because of course they have autonomy, but I'm not going to be spending all my time on that when other people really want to participate. Yep. And sometimes it's just, it is what it is. It's just not the day, not the day for therapy. And sometimes that can get in the way of discharge planning, which I might yeah, push a little bit harder on those folks and tell them how it's going to impact them. But at the end of the day, like you said, everyone's got autonomy. They've always have right to refuse. Right. And it's not like like a sniff or acute rehab where you might have to make up those minutes. But mm-hmm. acute care, it's like, I can just put a contact note in. Like I attempted to see them. They didn't want to see me. I'll still leave like the eval orders not completed or not acknowledged so that somebody else might be able to attempt the next day. But I put my contact note in. I tried. So there is an attempt on our end that we are responding to doctor's orders. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, again, where the type of reimbursement you have in a setting really impacts what your employer, which in this case, the hospital wants out of you. And so when we look at hospitals, when we look at acute, you have two primary methods, which is usually like a bundled payment. So if it's Medicare Part A, right, we have our diagnosis-related groups, our DRGs, which is like a bundled payment based on diagnosis. So OT isn't separately reimbursed versus our observation or outpatient patients, they're paid for under Medicare Part B under fee-for-service. And so that patient then is paying separately for each visit. And that's based on units. So you could bill one unit or six, you know, depending on the time that you're there. And that kind of then influences what our hospitals want out of us, which primarily, like you said, with discharge planning, they want to decrease length of stays. That Mm -hmm. is the main incentive in hospitals is to decrease the length of stay because the shorter the stay, the less money they're spending on it. So the more likely they are to have some leftover of that DRG. And Two, they want to decrease hospital readmissions. Right, exactly. And so if we can show that we reduce hospital readmissions, that we can reduce length of stays, those are the things to start bringing up in your hospital. And we do have like one of the most popular studies that we cite in advocacy all the time is a Rogers study. It was done a few years ago, and it was shown that occupational therapy is the only service in a hospital that shows if you spend more money on it, you will decrease length of stays and readmissions. Awesome. 
And it was an independent study. It's not an occupational therapy study. It was just going through claims data. And they showed that occupational therapy was the only service that reduced hospital readmission. So if you work in a hospital and you're trying to advocate for OT, the Rogers study, that's the one to pull up. Do you know, just because it wasn't a bias thing, it was literally just looking at the data. Do you know if they mentioned anything about like what we did differently from PT that really helped to reduce hospital readmission? I don't know if they said anything like that. You know, I believe they talked about it. I think the main thing was that, you know, looking at not only the physical factors, but the socio factors, the social determinants of health, housing, all those sorts of things, and like our role in fall risk. I'd have to look back at the study to be able to quote it directly. And you know what, I'll go ahead, I'll look it up and I'll link it in the show notes. So anyone who wants to check out the study, it'll be linked there for you. It's, um, I believe it's an open access one, but it was, you know, kind of like you said, we really consider all the factors, which is why I think occupational therapy is such a great discharge planner, because we look at not only their mobility, but their function and their home environment and the social supports. You know, it's not just whether or not they can get in their house. What do they do once they're in there? Yeah. And are they going to be safe to go back to independent living when they're, they have cognitive deficits? They're taking like 30 minutes to complete pericare and they're perseverating on the task and they seem to understand what you're saying, but they're taking a really long time to do it and can't do it without queuing. Is that person going to be safe to manage their own medications alone? Probably not. Yeah. But they walk 20 feet so they can go home, but they're using a shoe to comb their hair. Yeah, exactly. But, but they walk 20 feet without a walker so they can go home. Yeah, I can tell that that's never, you know, you that's never happened to you. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking off the fly. Just just as a hypothetical situation. I wasn't triggered or anything saying that. (laughs) (laughs) My last question before we talk about your case management stuff. Do you have a favorite intervention? Like what is your go-to intervention in acute care? I'll tell you mine. Like evaluation or intervention? Because I have a lot of interesting evaluation tools. Okay, well, let's do evaluation then. Just say things like, okay, show me how you take off a sock or show me how you pick up this item from the floor. Or I ask them... Like if the house lit on fire, what would you do? Or somebody with a traumatic brain injury, like, do you think you're safe to go and drive right now by yourself? Either I'll have them show me something really quick, or I'll ask them a hypothetical question to see how they're thinking about their thinking and their movement. Because I might have somebody that is completely unaware and they're like, yeah, I can go drive right now. And Mm -hmm. that says to me that you are not aware of, you have reduced safety awareness. (laughs) Yeah, those are good. So I don't know, I just ask a lot of questions and I go from there. Yeah, and I think that's where we really support a lot of the discharge planning because I think that makes me think of the questions, my go-to questions. One of my favorite ones was to ask people how they knew what the day of the week was. Hmm. If you took your medications on Tuesdays, how do you know that it's Tuesday? And it's always interesting, right? Because you don't really think about how do you know, how do you confirm? (laughs) And some of them, a lot of, especially older folks would say that they look at the calendar. Well, if you look at a paper calendar, there's no way really to confirm what date it is because I could look at it at any given time and decide that today's Wednesday. And they're like, well, I cross off the days. Well, you can cross off the days at any point because I know because I've seen patients think that it's Wednesday and then they take their Thursday meds later in the afternoon when they think it's Thursday. That's one of my favorite ones to ask, especially people who I suspect might have a cognitive impairment is to see, can they confirm? Some people are like, oh, well, I watch the news at noon every day and it says the date on the TV okay, I'll give them that. Or, oh, I check my phone and it has the date on there that automatically updates. My other favorite one is to ask people how the health of their spouse is or whoever's at home with them. So 
not only that they have someone at home and I ask them how their health is because the number of times where they're like, oh yeah, my husband's at home with me. And it turns out he has advanced dementia in a wheelchair, Yeah, yep. you know, versus case management or someone else didn't pick up on that because they, they only asked who's home with you. They didn't ask the follow-up questions right? or even sometimes they may be perfectly healthy, but they're in a wheelchair, right? which if you have a patient who now, you know, is hemiparetic on one side, that's great that they may be able to help with wheel or with meals or so all sorts of other things, but they're not going to be able to physically help with transfers. Yeah. No, that's so good that you asked that because I ask that every time too. I'm like, okay, is your wife going to be able to help you? Like, is she pretty physically able? Is she, how's her like cognition, things like that. But I also ask them, okay, are they working full time? Are they going to be able to help you? Are they willing to help you? Because they could say, I live with my wife or I live mm-hmm. with my son, but they are on business trips all the time. And they won't tell you that unless you ask that specific question. Or I ask if it's a helpful teenager or a regular teenager. Right. Right. Because <laughs> there's a difference. There, there are two very different type of 17-year-olds. One may be helpful. One may be not. Yeah. Because like today, my patient says that he lives with his cousin. And so the TCS notes like lives with his cousin. He has help. But the patient tells me that the cousin doesn't give a crap about him and he's not willing to help him. And so that kind of changed. Some of yeah, this. that changes the whole social situation. You might as well be home alone then, right? Or oh, I'm home with my kids, but the kid is six. Yeah. So if they're if they're younger, I usually ask them like, well, how old are they? But if they're like 90, I'm like, okay, well, is your, is your son working full time? No, he's retired. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's really great. And I, I will say my favorite intervention is brushing teeth. Yeah. You can tell so much about that. Mm-hmm. Just sequencing in their vision and, you know, break down the task with their actual biomechanical skills. It's always funny, too, because I feel like everyone has a slightly different way that they brush their teeth. And the ones that always surprise me are the people who squeeze their toothpaste directly into their mouth. Oh, my gosh. I don't think I've seen that yet. Maybe it was a Missouri thing. There are so many patients who would put the toothpaste directly into their mouth and then brush their teeth. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess going back to my intervention, I you said toothbrushing. I think mine's toileting, as weird as it sounds. Because I can actually see, you know, your functional mobility, how you mm-hmm. get to the bathroom, how you transfer up and down from the toilet, like how you know where the toilet paper is, how you're wiping, how you're putting on new briefs, how you're standing from there. I can see so much from just toileting. And I think that's what's interesting and acute is you really learn to capture a lot of information in a very short amount of time. Like I can tell a lot about a patient by only spending 15 minutes with them. And yes, you know, I can't perform a lot of really extensive assessments or standardized assessments like you might be able to in some other settings, but I can get a pretty darn good idea of what level of care that patient might need just by performing, like you said, toileting and brushing their teeth. Mm -hmm. I can pretty much know most of what I need to know about that individual. Right. Yep. I could literally just get you to the bathroom and back and know what you need as well. I I think it says so much about you. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, I just let, we could talk all the time about all our pro (laughs) tips for acute care because I think it's such a a unique setting and I just find it fascinating. And my last pro tip is a warm washcloth will always make you a good friend of the patient. It's alerting stimuli, which they desperately need. So open up those blinds and a warm washcloth and you'll make a lot more friends and patients will be a lot more willing to work with you. They'll be friends with you if you get them a heated blanket after too. Ooh, that too. Yeah, one for them, one for me, for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to get in the corner with my blanket. 
Are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level? Then look no further than the Amplify OT membership. You heard that right. Amplify OT has its very own membership program. This membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in Medicare and advocacy. You will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who are share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, and you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. All right. So tell me about, because I saw you post this on Instagram, which is when I originally reached out to you. I was like, we need to talk about this on the podcast. I see a lot from acute care practitioners who feel like sometimes their clinical judgment isn't respected or they're making these discharge recommendations that then aren't being followed through and they feel really frustrated and they're not sure who's to blame or if anyone's to blame. And I think what's difficult about that is because you know, my own personal soapbox is that we all need to understand reimbursement a lot better than we do. But discharge planning, especially from the hospital, is so challenging because insurance is so different for every single patient. And I think that's part of, you know, not to put words in your mouth, but part of what spurred you to kind of connect with case management was because of some of these frictions. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about what you did and why. To start shadowing case management? Yeah. So my boss actually sent out an, e- an email about if anybody would be willing to shadow TCS, the transitional care services, he usually has a RN case manager, a social worker, and a transitional care associate, one of their supporters. And I was just really curious about it because I know that sometimes, like you said, our recommendations aren't followed or there's just a lot about insurance that I don't know. Like I'm making recommendations based off of how I see them move. I'm not making recommendations based off of they are there with no insurance or they're there with Medicaid and dialysis and getting Mm -hmm. cancer treatment. Like I'm not making recommendations on that. I'm making recommendations based on what's safe. But then I've also heard the discharge planners were having a hard time placing people because of like our notes were confusing for them or like things that the phrases that we clicked were confusing for them. Like if somebody was clicking, yeah, they still need therapy, but can they go home or can they do like home health? So I thought that that would be interesting to just hear from their perspective and see their flow. And then they can learn from us too. And then we can learn what we can do to help them because I don't want to go in there and make their jobs harder. I want to make it easier (laughs) Um, and just facilitate that collaboration and just see what do they need from us as best as we can to help with this safe discharge. Because acute is really interdisciplinary. Another thing, again, that makes it different from a lot of settings is that you really have every discipline under one roof. You have all the therapies, you have nursing, the specialty docs, the surgeons, case management, social work, they're all 
right there and often right on that floor. So it's really an interdisciplinary setting. And I think what you said is important where, you know, they are kind of relying oftentimes on our notes Mm -hmm. to help inform where they should send someone. Because like you said, we kind of think about it from the functional aspect, but by not really considering what their insurance may or may not cover, sometimes it means that we set the patients up to expect something that they can't have. Mm-hmm. Or we end up just making it really challenging for our coworkers who then don't know, okay, well, this would be great, right? It would be great if everyone could go to Earth or it'd be great if everyone can go to SNF. But if you know Medicaid doesn't cover any OT after they discharge, too bad. And then by not considering that, sometimes we then don't set up our patients for success before they discharge because we just kind of didn't think about it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's been a tough and tricky balance because, you know, somebody that, like we were saying, like has Medicaid and on dialysis, like they might be able to go to a SNF but not have rehab paid for. So what's mm. what's the point of that? Because I, I heard that they might be able to get a bed, but th- they will not cover rehab services. Interesting. Yeah. And Medicaid is so different, you know, and especially now we have like managed Medicaids too, which is kind of like your Medicare advantages where every plan can be very different and what facilities are willing to take. Cause that's something we kind of forget too. In acute care, you have to accept everybody, anybody who needs care, you're required to provide them with care in the hospital, but post-acute care facilities do not have to accept everybody. They can be choosy. They've shown they can pick and choose. They have a referral system that like that facilities will either be like interested or denied or can't take for these reasons. And like they have to say, like, can't make meet this standard, their behaviors, like whatever it is. Oh, yeah. And if they have a history of violence or sexual assault or a criminal history or even inpatient psychiatric history, it can be really hard sometimes to get those folks discharged. Yeah. And I was told that they wouldn't take them out of sniff if it's just like a behavioral thing or just a cognitive thing and they can't really get better functionally like they don't really need to work on strengthening or getting around better but they're just kind of wandering confused and can't manage themselves yeah take them out of sniff yeah because i think then the reimbursement is just not really then they can't really justify payment under you know needing five skilled therapy five days of therapy or seven days of skilled nursing in a sniff if they can't meet that criteria or like inpatient rehab, right? If they can't tolerate three hours of therapy a day, then they really aren't eligible to go to inpatient rehab. Right. So I'm curious, what have been some of your kind of biggest takeaways from following case management and their team? TCS, like the care management team, they say always it's their first choice is like, how do I get this person home? It's not automatically a sniff. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this person's having a hard time getting out of bed. Instead of straight to sniff, I'm thinking like, how can we problem solve this? Like if you don't have a hospital bed at home, do you at least have a recliner or adjustable bed? Or can you put pillows and stack them in order to get out of bed more readily? Like, can your spouse help get you out of bed? Because if the only thing you struggle with is bed mobility, but you can like get up and you can still take a shower, you can still do what you need to do. That wouldn't be a reason to say you need to go to skilled nursing if you only have trouble with this one area. So I think for me, when they're saying their first option is trying to get them home, that at least puts it in my mind, what kind of supports can we have at home? Maybe this person lives alone and their daughter that lives 20 minutes away might be able to stay with her for a week, see how it goes, see if she still needs her. Okay, now this person might be able to go home instead of 
straight off go to a skilled nursing. So just just trying to think like home first and what kind of supports can I put in place? Because I think automatically in my mind, when I see somebody really struggling to move, I'm like, oh, probably have to be recommending this option. But instead of that, like, how can I really problem solve first and see if any of these things are possible? Yeah, it kind of changes the focus a little bit of like what your first first goal is. Yeah. So if you found yourself recommending post-acute care a little bit less than you did before? Yeah, I think so. Because this one lady the other day, I walk into her room and she just shows me a screen that says like the name of the facility nearby. She's like, this is where I need to go. I was like, okay, I guess that's where <laughs> she came from. Because the day before she was a lot weaker and she was more shaky. But then when I saw her, she kind of just popped up and she was walking pretty well with the walker and she could get up and down from the toilet and she was standing really well and like wasn't losing her balance. And I was thinking, okay, so you said that you want to go to the skilled nursing because nobody lives with you. Okay. What about this person? You said that this, that this sister lives nearby. And then she said, oh, actually, yeah, I think she, she could come and stay with me, especially for overnight. Okay. What about at times of urgency, you need to get to the bathroom, but you're feeling really painful or shaky. What about like a bedside commode or something nearby Mm -hmm. that you can still get to the bathroom or like you can have nightlights in your room or I don't know, time, time when you last drink your yeah jug of water. I don't know, just kind of pre-planning more like that. So then she was able to go home that same day with home health instead of her going to skilled nursing. So that happened last week and that was awesome. And I think that kind of highlights too, you know, not only is it really our patients' goals to get home, mm-hmm. but also one, it helps reduce healthcare spending because home is a lot cheaper than post-acute care centers. And two, it's usually overall healthier for them because if you go to an institution like ERF and SNF are considered, you know, institutional settings, mm-hmm. you're much more likely to acquire an infection, to have a fall or skin breakdown. And so it's interesting how that shift of how case management thinks about discharge versus how we might have been thinking about discharge. Because I think too, especially as therapists, we tend to look a little bit more on like the safer side. We're like, well, maybe they could go home, but it'd be safer or they'd get have more therapy if they went to sniff. And that's kind of how we tend to think, which then is a little bit then in conflict of how the other other folks on the team might be mm-hmm. thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway. And how did case management respond to you all following them? Or what were some of the questions that they had for you? Yeah, they responded really well. And they said that they just appreciated our time to come out and actually learn from them instead of just you know, working separately. And then why is this not happening? And then their notes aren't like this. And now I feel like I have a much better relationship with the transitional care team. And I feel like I've been going to them a lot more now in person, or they've come been coming to me in person and saying like, okay, what do you think about this person? Or we don't have any updated notes for them. And we're trying to get them to go here versus home. So I just feel a lot more comfortable, even though I didn't shadow um, like the unit I was on today, I shadowed on like the long-term oncology unit. Mm -hmm. I still felt more comfortable with going to another floor and knocking on their office and just having a conversation with them because it helped them and it helped me. So I think it's made it a lot less, I guess, scary in my mind because I know what they're looking for and they know what I'm looking for and just how we're able to help each other out. And I think they can become really big advocates for therapy as well. You know, I think about that, that oftentimes the reason we aren't getting referrals isn't because someone actively dislikes OT, it's because they don't know what we do, you know, and maybe this is just my sunny, sunny perspective. Like, 
healthcare workers aren't really out to get other healthcare workers. Like we're not really out to disadvantage other people. So like, oh, I don't want you to have PT so you can have me. You know, it's <laughs> it's more so like we just don't understand what each other's do, others do, which is totally reasonable because you didn't go to school mm-hmm. to be what they did, you know. And so I think that's also a really great part of like them getting to know us better because then if they identify that someone is having issues with discharge, they can ask the doctor then to put in a referral for OT. If they see the value in what we bring to them and to the patient, then they're far more likely to refer to us because we kind of forget that too, right? Like nurses hold the keys to the castle in hospitals. It is not the physicians. If you want an order, if you want something done, you go to the nurse, you don't wait for the doctor to come in. And like, so if a nurse understands the role of therapy and why we're important, you know, it's almost more important that they understand what we do than even the physicians because they can ask the doctor for mm-hmm. therapy orders and help us get that patient discharged. And I think one thing that I really learned from my case management team was how difficult it is to discharge patients to inpatient rehab, especially when they're on Medicare Advantage plans. Right. Yeah. That was something that I thought that I just had no idea how like these prior authorizations work. Did you get to chat with them about that process of how they get people pre-approved or what they look for in documentation? To get to like a three-hour day. Mm-hmm, or Yeah. I try to put in my notes like <sighs> trigger words like motivated to participate, like great family support, like good functional prognosis without, you know, continued skilled OT intervention might be a risk for a hospital readmission, high fall risk, things like that, that they don't want to pay extra for. So right? I try to put in phrases like that, <laughs> like, like they can tolerate the three hours. They just did a full 60 minute ADL routine with me showering everything. And then they did this with PT earlier. They're really motivated. They really want to recover. Um, they were previously independent. Um, without this, they might fall, probably fall and readmit. They're like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Hitting those keywords, the things that that they care about. And that's right. That's where the interesting part of documentation is. I think a lot of us as clinicians think of documentation as a way to document what happened, mm-hmm. but it's also a way that we can influence their care down the line. Right. It's kind of like, too, you really want to be careful in who you call agitated or aggressive. Yes. yes I have stopped doing things like that for people. It's not going to help. Right. Because if you call someone agitated or aggressive, even if they that gets into sometimes kind of the question of is it being judgmental or putting a judgment on the patient, but sometimes just calling them agitated gives the inpatient rehab facility or the SNF or sometimes their insurance plan reason enough to deny them care. Yeah, this kind of thing happened last week with a guy who had a stroke and they were trying to get him to go to rehab, but like nursing notes were quoting him like things that he was saying or he was agitated and like didn't want to do certain things. So I knew that I already knew that he was having a hard time getting placed, but I thought he needed to go somewhere for therapy too. So I was just very objective, like right side leaning, poor sitting balance, expressed interest in standing, doing these things, high Mm -hmm. fall So I just kept it very objective, even though I agreed with what they were saying, but I knew that that wasn't going to help him. So I'd rather just keep it very objective without any opinions. And I think that brings us back too to the point about refusals, right? Where especially in patient rehab, if a patient declines, which, you know, that's another part, right? Is it a decline or is it a refusal? If a patient declines to participate in therapy that day, 
a lot of times inpatient rehab facilities won't take them because right. of that three hour requirement, because that is built into their their reimbursement. So like if an inpatient rehab facility isn't providing the amount of therapy they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Now, technically, Medicare would claim if you look at the technical guidelines that they don't require three hours of therapy five days a week. Mm-hmm. But effectively, people will tell you that if you don't provide that, Medicare tends to not want to pay for it. So even though it's not a technical requirement, it's effectively a requirement. But so if that patient declines in acute, a lot of times inpatient rehab facilities won't take them. Right. And it's also a fine line too, right? Of that kind of like not making them look too functional. Mm-hmm. Like there's kind of a, it's not written down anywhere. It's not any kind of policy, but it's kind of understood that if a patient walks more than like 150 feet, right. that sometimes yeah. inpatient rehab will see them as too functional. Now, there, that is not in any kind of Medicare document. That is not in any kind of reimbursement oh, guideline, but right. <laughs> but, but effectively inpatient rehab facilities, if they walk further than that, won't take them because then they see that almost as they're so functional that they can't really justify three hours of skilled therapy. Yeah. I've run into that so many different times too, but mm-hmm. I like to, if I'm trying to advocate for them to get somewhere, I'll say things like they weren't aware of their environment. They were running their walker into this barrier. Like they were looking at their feet the whole time. They were pushing the walker out so far in front of them. They had to have cues for safe walker management, like say cues for posture and positioning, or the patient could had difficulty wayfinding, even with these types of cueing, or just they needed three seated rest breaks and their oxygen dropped to this and they needed over a minute to recover and yeah, so I'll say things like that about their endurance and their cognition and their balance. Like, yeah, they might have walked this far, but they needed to take six standing rest breaks. Oh, like how many TBI patients do you have that could walk like 10 miles? Oh my goodness. But they'd walk straight out into the middle of the road without their pants on, you know, like, and I think that's really that, that really highlights that skilled component, right? Because we all have seen videos making fun of the fact that people say, oh, well, OT can't walk patients, you know, and I will say what's true is that you cannot just walk a patient because that's not skilled. And I think what you're highlighting there really is the importance of really not only documenting what occurred, which is what we kind of default to because that's how EMRs are set up, right? You have your little check boxes and drop downs to really just document what happened. But really what we need to be documenting is the skilled component, which is how we graded the task and our clinical observations, like you're saying that really justify why that higher level of need is. Because when you think about, especially for these discharge planners or the care team that's communicating with insurance, all they have to go off of are your notes. Mm -hmm. So you really have to paint the picture of the patient in front of them. Because if all you said is that they walked to the bathroom with men assist, how (laughs) does that tell me, you know, that, that that patient needs inpatient rehab? I'd be like, so what? You know, like, if I stub my toe, I walk to the bathroom with men assist, you know, like (laughs) you really have to paint that comprehensive clinical picture. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career. And of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With the MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. 
One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT Amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% off with the code AMPLIFYOT, that's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support AmplifyOT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development and head over to MedBridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to MedBridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. If I was a discharge planner and I saw that, I would say, well, why can't you go home with your sister or like an unskilled right. caregiver helping you? Like, why do you need to be there? Right. So I think that skeptics approach a little bit of, we know why what we did was important. We know why this patient can't go home. But if you don't communicate that, then no one else is going to believe it because they can't read your mind and they don't see the patient. You know, like I've had some people be like, oh, I wish I could just like upload a video, you know, and that way they could watch it and then they'd be able to see what I'm seeing. And, but you kind of have to paint, you have to type the video, you have to kind of paint that picture. Because yeah, I will agree that some patients look very functional if you just kind of looked at their overall checkboxes, but you know that by looking at them or that when they're very inconsistent, where some days they may be really functional and other days they are not. Right. (laughs) And we have to really paint that picture for them. Right. I tend to kind of over-document and give too many examples versus none. Like today, somebody was, the goal was to get him back to independent living. And just because he was able to walk to the bathroom with contact guard assist and a front wheel walker, he goes on the toilet and then he goes to stand with still his briefs wrapped around his ankles and he starts walking away from the toilet. Mm-hmm. I was like, he, he just doesn't have the awareness for that. So things like that shows that he does need somebody there with him, at least cueing him because he saw no problem with tripping over his pants, even though he was able to walk to the bathroom with contact guard assist. And I think that leads perfectly then to what we were talking about earlier that I said I wanted to come back to with the phrases in our documentation around discharge, because our hospital was the same way where we had multiple different check boxes and like obviously then a free text box, but our options were higher level of care. So basically that was kind of like they need to go to assisted living or independent living. They really shouldn't be home anymore or memory care. We had, I think it was you know, it's been a little bit while, but I believe it's just like kind of a post-acute care, like something kind of like we were saying, right? Like the ongoing skilled therapy. We had just like a post-acute care box. And the reason we had just the post-acute care box was because originally they had had like LTAC, ERF, and SNF. Okay. But if OT clicked SNF and PT clicked inpatient rehab, right? right because there is often sometimes a fine line between when someone really needs and sniff. And a lot of times what it comes down to is what insurance is going to cover. But especially some of our private insurance plans, which often require prior authorization before they can discharge someone. Like Medicare doesn't do prior auth. Like if you're Medicare Part A or B, there's no prior auth. It's just as long as they meet the coverage criteria, they can go because Medicare does audits versus prior auth. Medicare Advantage 
does prior authorizations. Oh, okay. So they have to approve oftentimes the care before they go. So that's where like, you know, case management is like, we need notes today so right. they can submit them to the insurance. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so what they found is that if we were trying to get patient to inpatient rehab, which a lot of private insurances really don't want to play, pay for IRF because IRF is like a few thousand dollars a day versus right. SNF is like a few hundred. Big difference. And so if they can justify SNF, they're going to do it. So if OT had checked SNF and PT had checked IRF, the insurance would say, oh, well, looks like OT thinks SNF is fine, denying for IRF. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, of course, you have the whole issue where patients think that SNFs are nursing homes and that's where people go to die and then they end up going home. <laughs> That's a whole other barrier, but that's where we ended up just saying post-acute care. So that way there wasn't something in our documentation that denied a patient care where they may have benefited from both. And really the goal was just to get them to one of those settings because they needed higher level before they could discharge home, Right. but wanting to not have the documentation work against you. Right. Yeah. We can click the box able to tolerate three hours. Mm. or you click ongoing skilled therapy needs. So if PT and I talk and we're thinking this person, they should go to acute rehab, like they'd probably be bored at SNF. They could do way more. They are way more motivated. They could do a lot more. Then we'll both click able to tolerate three hours, or sometimes we'll click both able to tolerate three hours and ongoing skilled therapy needs. So at least they're not cut out of one and they can go to wherever they get accepted because we'd rather have them get therapy somewhere than nothing. Yeah. I think that's important too, where you talk about communicating with case management. I talked to my case managers like daily. Mm-hmm. A, I thought they were fun. B, I learned a lot from them. And C, like I would often kind of tell them, because a lot of times patients wanted to go to rehab. Like it never failed that some doctor told them, we're going to get you to rehab, you know? Right. <laughs> and we had a rehab unit in the hospital. So Everybody wanted, so we had two floors in our hospital that were dedicated to inpatient rehab. And so everybody wanted to go to inpatient rehab because they could just transfer halls. Like they just get in their hospital bed and go to, you know, inpatient rehab. And so they're, you know, the doctors would always say, oh yeah, we'll get you there. Of course, you know, not thinking about what that might mean, but I would kind of tell our case managers, you know, look, the patient really wants to go to inpatient rehab. I'm going to tell you, though, SNF is more appropriate. Mm -hmm. And that way, too, then the case managers appreciated that they didn't have to waste their time really trying to apply for prior auth for something that most likely wasn't going to get approved because the patient just really wasn't appropriate for inpatient rehab. You know, so you could kind of then also prep the patient for that. Like I would always I always say never make a promise to a patient about discharge planning ever. Never. (laughs) Never. Never say, oh, yeah, you'll definitely be able to go X, Y or Z because you will make a fool of yourself and the patient will be very mad. There's so many factors that go into it. Mm -hmm. We don't have that authority. We can make recommendations. That's it. Exactly. That's all anyone, any of us can really do is make recommendations. Ultimately, it's up to the patients and up to the insurance and everything else as to what, where the chips fall. And I think that's, again, where we can kind of really communicate with case management is like, look, this is really what's most appropriate for the patient this is what the patient wants. This is what the doctor has said, but this is what I'm going to tell you is most likely, or like, you know, maybe if they stay one more night, they can probably go home versus going to sniff. And then the case management is maybe able to advocate to the physician that they should stay one more night because of whatever X, Y, or Z. And so I think by this is again, you know, that part where we really can't ignore the insurance component as much as we'd like to, because of what a strong influence it has on the care that the patient has access to. Mm -hmm. 
I can see what kind of insurance that they have. But if I have any questions about it, now that I feel more comfortable going to them in person, I say, I think that they could benefit from this. But what about with this insurance or like this kind of barrier if they're getting like chemo or mm-hmm. dialysis or whatever. And they already said like, if you're Medicaid and dialysis, like you're, you're kind of out of luck, unfortunately, with like rehab services. But I think just talking to them in person and saying like, what realistically are our options? Because if there's no possible way, like he got denied for his behaviors, he got denied for this, that, or the other thing. Like I'm really trying to up my game and figure out like bring in, as many supports as we can and help them think right. of other family members or whatever, whatever it may be. So I think it's helpful to talk to them when I don't fully understand. I obviously don't understand all the insurances. So I'll go talk to the case managers and then they'll tell me like, realistically, this could happen. And sometimes they can give you little hints of like, try and make sure that this is documented. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you never want to lie on your documentation. We are definitely not advocating for that, right. but there are ways to be strategic in how you report something that can help the patient get access to the care that they need. Right. And two, you know, they can understand too, like what DME might be available to that patient. Cause some insurances are like, especially like VA can be mm-hmm. really fantastic in the DME and adaptive equipment that they cover. And so that's a great time too, to ask the case manager, like what might be covered for them? What might be an option for them? Um, before again, we kind of start making recommendations willy nilly with now really understanding what that patient might have access to. We may either put them in a financial situation where they get access to something they couldn't afford, or we prevent them from getting access to something they could have had covered because we didn't know that it was. Right. Yeah. I think it, this, again, it's what makes acute care challenging is because of how many factors are at play and it's not quite as straightforward as any other setting. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for other clinicians who might want to learn more about discharge planning or do something similar and talk with their case management team, build a closer relationship with them? I think starting to just form a relationship with the case managers. Sometimes we message over the hospital chat, or if I see them, you know, just walk up to them and introduce yourself. And you basically say like, Hey, like I want to help make this process as easy for you as I can possibly make it. Like what kind of things would be helpful from your end or what kind of things does this person need in order for us to get them home safely? No, I think those are really good. I mean, we kind of forget that everybody's human. Everyone appreciates a hello sitting down and documenting next to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you said, they're people too. They just want to feel valued for their role and know, you know, what they're doing is obviously important to you and just acknowledging them. So at least you can start to create a relationship. And even if it's not like a full-blown shadowing, like what I did, at least, you know, where their office is on every floor, or you start to recognize who they are. Because when I first started, I had no clue who the case managers were. I didn't really Mm -hmm. know what they did. There's still so much for me to learn, but I feel like I understand the role a lot better. And then I know that they come to me more often now because I actually took the initiative to reach out to them and learn more about them. And I think that's such a great way to advocate for occupational therapy because they start to understand what it is that they do or that we do. They see us as a resource and an ally. And I think, too, you know, we can save them money. Like if I know that case management hasn't stopped by to see the patient yet, I might pop my head in as I'm walking past and say, hey, just so you know, they live at home with a 40-year-old son who's going to be able to help them out. Mm -hmm. And that then saves them the, you know, needing to ask 
that patient those exact same questions. We all know how much patients hate being asked the same question five yes. times on admission, right? Yes, I've gotten yelled at so many times. So I just try to see social work notes, PT notes, if they've seen them. And I'll just go in there and say, okay, just let me double check. Like, has anything changed this and this, right? And then they can fill in the blank. Yeah. And I think, like we said, you know, moral of the story is that discharge planning is hard. Yeah. It's a really complex system. And so when our discharge plans aren't followed, it usually is not personal. It is not a dismissal of your of your clinical judgment, of your expertise. It's just maybe one, we didn't consider the right factors. So the discharge plan we came up with in the first place was never going to be realistic. Mm -hmm. Or there's just so many other factors at play that even if the case manager did everything that you recommended and the patient said no, (laughs) well, that's all there is to it. Yep. That, because at the end of the day, it's still the patient and their rights and their autonomy and they can, you can get the most perfect discharge plan ready for them. You can get the unicorn situation, like the most ideal, perfect situation, and they don't want it. Even yep. if they are cognitively intact or not cognitively intact, if they don't want it, you can't force somebody to do something. All you can do is educate, document, and move on. Right, exactly. And I think that's, there's people we can help who want our help. There's people who we can help who don't want it. And then unfortunately, there's people who we can't help who want our help. We have to accept that there are going to be plenty of folks that no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you educate, that they just simply don't want what we have to offer. And that's okay. It's nothing personal. It's just Mm -hmm. life. Right. Yeah. So I've tried to create some mental boundaries with Mm -hmm. discharge planning too, because I've gotten so worked up over situations. And like you said, it it might be you think that they're they don't care about your opinions. And it's really not that. Or the patient just they don't agree with what you say and and that's okay. They have their own opinions and they can make their own choices. So I think it's just helped me to not take things so personally and just try to think of it really holistically. And like you said, it's such an interdisciplinary process, work together with the team, like, well, what kind of things can we do while they're here to at least make it a little bit safer at home if they're open to anything that we say? Yes. And that's the number of times I got fired, especially from dementia patients (laughs) when I was in home health. Because I would push too hard because I would notice all the things that were going on and say, well, these are all the things they need to change. They can't be driving anymore. And uh, it didn't go well. It was a hard lesson to learn as a new grad. And I eventually learned that I had to ask them, are you ready to make changes? And if they said no, then I would tell them, okay, here's what I observed. This is what I would recommend. Whenever you're ready to make a change, let your doctor know and they'll order some more home health. Mm -hmm. We'll come back. But it was a really hard lesson to learn that some people just are not are not willing to change and it does not matter if you provided the best most perfect education intervention motivational interviewing if they're just not in a place to accept the help or accept what we have to offer or they just think we're wrong yeah you know that's just how it goes well that's a really good question i want to start asking that (laughs) in your question about like how do you know that this is today's date you have some really good approaches (laughs) that i want to ask (laughs) But you'll have to get back to me and let me know how those go. Because, yeah, Yeah. asking people if they're ready to make a change, especially like fall safety. Like I remember like patients are not willing to get rid of their throw rugs. They will die on those throw rugs. They will not get rid of them. And the stigma that comes with a walker, it's very Mm -hmm. personal and it's very life changing for some people. And I've had people straight up told me that they were offended that I suggest even using a walker. So sometimes I'll say, okay, yeah, absolutely. It's it's up to you. Um, Maybe this is more helpful for energy conservation or 
Like you just have four points of contact on the ground now. So at least you have more confidence here, but at the end of the day, it it is your choice. I can't make you do anything. These are just recommendations. They're like, Oh, okay. So I think just putting the ball back in their court and just reminding them that you are in charge of your body. These are just things like you said that I've observed. Um, And if you want to, you know, work through that, I can help you. But if not, that's okay too. And not making them feel bad for it because (laughs) nobody wants a guilt trip either. No, absolutely. I mean, none of us would like it. We're all our own worst patients. Like, I know I'm going to be a terrible patient whenever I'm I get so bad. So awful. I'm going to not believe anything that they tell me. I'd be intentionally bad, though. <laughs> so I, I just, I don't know. Like I said, I'm the I, one who would turn off my own bed alarm for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I already do it when I visit like family members in hospitals. So just turn it <laughs> off and get them up to the bathroom. I'm yeah. doing the nurse a favor. All right. You know. Right. So, yeah, I think just those emotional boundaries are helpful. Yeah, because we talked about, you know, my experiences with burnout before we kind of got on the podcast and developing those emotional boundaries with work mm-hmm. are absolutely essential. What you are or are not willing to take home with you right. and what you are or are not willing to do, you know, no one's forcing you to pick up that extra shift mm-hmm. or help out, say a couple hours late. Work will take whatever you're willing to give them. Mm-hmm. And so putting up those boundaries is really important especially when you're working in some of these really challenging settings where you really, you really experience a lot of heartbreaking situations, mm-hmm. especially in the hospital. Right. Well, what a fun note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Boundaries and self-care and autonomy. That's great to end on. That's true. Great to end on. Moral of the story, talk to your case managers. They are your best friends. Um, they can make your lives a lot easier. And overall, it's just a really great way to advocate for therapy by educating them on what we do and then also learning about what they do and how they can help our patients. Because sometimes too, that's, you don't really realize all the resources that they have at their fingertips that we may not even know existed. Mm -hmm. And we're able to then get those resources to our patients. And if we don't connect the dots, the patient's not going to get those services. And so that's really, really helpful too. Sometimes they've they've got asked to see their binders. They've always got binders of information. It's always a treasure trove. Yeah, I got this whole like handout and this connection card that one of the social worker gives out to people. It has like housing and food and homeless outreach and crisis centers and like suicide hotlines. And I got tons of resources from them. So they really know their stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Alyssa, for chatting with me and coming on the Amplify OT podcast. Everyone go follow her. It's it's genuine OT, right? Is there an underscore in there? Yeah, genuinely.ot. All right. So go follow Alyssa for all things acute care and to keep up to date on this project. And thanks for being part part of the Amplify OT podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast. And I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, 
If we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?